0: No, no, mate. Great to be along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda. are going to be having a chat about Jeanne de Clisson, the Lioness of Brittany. You may not have heard of this uh, this lady, but well, I say lady, wasn't much of a lady to be honest with some of the stuff she got up to. But uh, we're going to have a chat about exactly what happened during her life. She started off as a as a French noblewoman who, uh, to put it very mildly, got a, a little bit pissed off with her King Philip VI in the 14th century and uh, ended up becoming a bloodthirsty and brutal pirate, raving friendships and murdering hundreds and hundreds of people throughout her career as part of the Hundred Years' War. But it's a very interesting story to see exactly how she got there and exactly what she did, uh, you know, after becoming this pirate, starting off as a nobleman, ending up as a pirate, going around and, uh, and murdering blokes. So let's get stuck into it and have a chat about uh, the life of Jeanne de Clisson and figure out exactly what was going on there. So starting things off in 1300, very nice and neat here. She was born in 1300 in the Vendée, which is about half, way down the the western coast of modern-day France. She's born to a noble family. She enjoys a pretty comfortable childhood with the old, you know, silver spoon very firmly stuck in the mouth, whatever else. But as was the norm back then, she's married off to another noble fella at the age of, get this, at the age, right, of 12. So at the wedding, she's there bloody, you know, dabbing and doing bottle flips and and all that sort of stuff there. But uh, her new husband, Again, forced to you know forced into this marriage with uh, with another noble. This is what happened. This is very very normal back then. People of, you know of the upper classes were, were married off without any sort of saying it by their you know by their parents or whatever else by the by the dynasty they were part of. Anyway, um, so she's married off to this bloke whose whose name is Geoffrey. Bit of a pedestrian name, bit of a, you know, bit of a unexciting name there for a French nobleman. But anyway, he's 19, so he's robbing the cradle of just a little bit here. And we don't know too much about the marriage. There's not too much exciting stuff that, uh, you know, that sort of... Well, actually, there's... Well, for those... Not exciting for us, because for those two, there's all sorts of exciting stuff, because you know, I'm sure they got up to all sorts of exciting stuff, because they had two kids. So, you know, obviously, they were, you know, they weren't just sitting there twiddling their thumbs. But anyway... um. These two kids actually. Jeffrey's family must have had a real thing for unexciting names, because he names the first kid after himself, so Jeffrey Junior, and then the second one Louise. Now, I you know, I don't want to have a crack at anyone called Geoffrey or Louise, but you know, when you're thinking of 14th century French nobles, you're not thinking you're thinking of people. You know, names like Estienne or Gaspar, not Buddy Jeffrey and Louise. They sound like the HR department at the castle. Anyway. All is well with uh, with Jean and Geoffrey until 1326, when poor old Geoffrey just dies, just just like that. No idea why. The history books are very quiet about this guy's death. I don't know if something's been covered up here, but honestly, I couldn't find a single detail about why this actually why this bike actually popped his clogs. Anyway, it looks like Jeanne herself uh, isn't so into the, the the single life. However, because after after Geoffrey, uh, you know, again shuffles off this mortal coil, she gets married again. This guy, this time to a guy whose name. Is Guy, guide of Pentievre. But as it happens, this one doesn't last either because this marriage ends up getting a papal annulment in 1330. And again, I'm not sure why. This Jeanne, she seems to have shacked up with some pretty shadowy figures in her younger days. But anyway, happily for Jeanne, uh, the third time is in fact the charm as she settles down with her third, but not final as it turns out, husband later in the same year in 1330. So she's getting through these blokes, but eventually finds one that she likes. This fellow's name is Olivia de Clisson. And uh, as you can probably guess, Jeanne uh, gains her notoriety after having taken his name. She's now Jeanne de Clisson herself. You anyway, know, quite unusually for the time. I talked before about the fact that, you know, aristocratic or noble marriages at this time were uh, usually political and not made for love. And so oftentimes, you know, generally, the, the bloke got the better deal of it because he could go and, you know, have mistresses and root kind of whoever he wanted while, you know, she had to stay at home doing whatever, you know, she was told. So pretty, pretty rubbish situation, uh, again, for French or for, for noble, not just French noble but noble women at the time, generally. But um, happily for these two, uh, they're, they're smashing paradigms all over the place because Jeanne and Olivia actually have a very, very happy marriage. By all accounts, they are just absolutely madly in love with each other, loving life and having a great time, right? So they sprog out a couple of kids together. Well, actually five altogether, but most of them die while they're, you know, rather young, which is pretty, pretty normal at the time. Again, not not a lot of, uh, you know, they're not bloody, you know, washing their hands after they go to the loo and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. Anyway, you know, apart from the fact that they've, they've they've sort of you know sprogged out a few dud kids, um, it, it's it's fair to say that things are pretty bloody good in the dec De household. You know, they're playing Scrabble, having bloody family movie nights, jumping the old people mover, and heading down to the beach or whatever. One of them, one of the one of the boys named uh, also named Olivia, he becomes Olivia the uh, the fifth. He goes on to get the nickname nickname the Butcher, and he becomes the constable of France. So he's destined for great things, but that's all, uh, of course, uh, a, a fair way off right now. Because in the early 1340s, right, a conflict arises between local noble families who is going to inherit the Duchy of Brittany. The conflict, This conflict becomes uh, known as the War of the Breton Succession, and it's a pretty significant part of the beginning stages of the Hundred Years' War, which you've probably heard of, the Hundred Years' War, massive uh, conflict between the, the French and the English, uh, and also didn't last for 100 years, it lasted for 116 years, so some historians really need to, you know, sort of pull it together and, 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 you know, pull their heads out of their asses, because 100 Years War, very, very misleading title. Anyway, the War of the Britain Succession itself, it lasts for a long time as well, not 116 years, but uh, it goes on for 24 years. It doesn't wrap up until 1365, but that's sort of outside the scope of what we're talking about here today. We don't have time to go through, you know, the whole 100 Years War uh, and and all that sort of stuff, but, but the War of the Britain Succession, what, like all, you know, more or less all of these conflicts at the time, the part of this, you know, the Hundred Years' War period, again, was between the French and the English. Not, not going to be a surprise there. Essentially, the scrap was about whether the female heir or the male heir would take the duchy. Now, the French backed the female Bois heir and the the English backed the male Montfort heir. So, as the conflict opens up, Jeanne's husband, Olivier de Clisson, he backs the French air. Obviously, you know, he's a red blooded Frenchman. He's going to get behind his king and he's going to do, uh, you know, do the right thing by, uh, you know, by his blokes. And uh, obviously. As as a, a nobleman is put uh, into battle, commanding some of the troops for the French army under King Philip the uh, the the sixth, when it all comes to so obviously these fight you know the, the war break. There's not much of a war if there's not actual fighting. So when that happens, Olivier jumps on his horse, kisses uh, you know kisses Jean uh, Jean goodbye, and says, "I'll, I'll be back later. Going you know going to go and kill me some Englishmen." So Olivier, he, uh, he has a pretty distinguished career. He's involved in the in the siege of Vannes in thirteen forty two. The English try four times to capture the town of Vannes, and after um, some pretty mixed results, they manage to take it once from for all in December thirteen forty two. So Olivier, he's fighting his hard out here, but uh, ultimately, once the English King uh, Edward the personally decides to oversee the siege. Uh, it, it's successful and uh, and Van falls So Van, once it falls Olivia is taken prison, prisoner by the English And he's dragged back off to England To rot in the dungeon for a bit now, Edward III, he doesn't hold on to him too long uh, as a prisoner, however, because, of course, uh, this time one of the main reasons that noblemen were uh, were captured by, uh, by opposing forces was was to ransom them back to, uh, you know, to the, the people that, uh, that, that that they'd been fighting for. And this is exactly what happens here. Uh, Edward III, he approaches the French, says, G'day, mate, how you going? Listen, uh, if you French blokes chuck us back my, ma- my mate Ralph de Stafford out of your dungeons, and a little bit of cash as well on this side, you know, for a ransom, uh, we'll give you uh, this, uh, this Olivia fellow back. Now the French they can't believe how generous old you know English Eddie has been here with Olivier because he he's exchanging Olivier for an absolute pittance. Obviously the French take the deal straight away. They're not going to leave that one on the table. It's a bloody good deal, but it raises more than a few eyebrows. I can tell you this because there is some suspicions that that sort of Olivier got away with murder here. He should have commanded a much higher price as a noble prisoner. And some vicious rumours start to swirl around the French courts, I'll tell you this. In the court of of the French King Philip VI, people are back chatting about this bloke like you wouldn't believe. They're saying that the the reason the ransom was so low is because Olivier was actually a traitor who had conspired with uh, King Edward uh, and had deliberately lost the siege of Vannes uh, to give away the town. Now, French Phil, he's very ready to believe anything at all that is bad about English Eddie. He's very ready to believe anything that paints uh, his rival in a negative light. So he starts to put his plan into motion as to how to deal with this. They've sort of got him hook, line, and sinker with this Olivia nonsense here. Anyway, a truce between the French and the English is signed on the 19th of January in 1343, the truce of Malestroit, uh, just a month or so after Vannes fell to the English. Now, old French Phil, he wants to chuck a party because of this truth. So he invites all of his mates around for this massive big tournament. So these huge boatloads of, of lords and nobles, generally knobby blokes uh, of all types, uh, were invited. And so, of course, uh, Olivier is no exception. And so he hops on his horse once again, uh, kisses Jean goodbye, and this turns out for, is for the last time and rides off to the party. And he gets there, party's bloody going off, you know, black-eyed peas are on, they're popping the champers, partying like it's twelve ninety nine all over again, having a great time. But, oh, no, what's this? During the big tournament... Along comes the along come the king's men here on the back of the king's suspicions about his treason. They arrest Olivia and drag him all the way to Paris to be tried. Now, poor old Olivia, he is tried, he is convicted, and he is sentenced to death for treason. And all of this happens at a blistering pace because on the second of August, thirteen forty-three, Olivia is taken out of his cell. He is dragged to the marketplace in La and he had his head cut off. He got it just, just straight up like that. No explanation, no public announcement, nothing else like that. He has his head cut off. And then further than that, his decapitated body is hung from a gibbet. Or is it a gibbet? A gibbet? I probably should have looked that up before I started, to be honest. I'm going to go with gibbet, but I'm not I'm not 100% confident with that one. Anyway, he's on this gibbet while his head was whacked on a spike in Nantes, right? Now, this execution, it created a massive stir. Huge, big controversy, this one. People are very unhappy about it. I'll tell you why. Reason number one, The evidence of this bloke's guilt was never made public. The other noble lords and all the knobs and everything, they never shown why he had been convicted. Reason number two is that all the stuff with the givet and putting his head on a spike was generally reserved for, you know, the lower classes, not, you know, not the knobs themselves. They were above such things usually. And so for these reasons, the execution is very poorly received. It's getting, you know, one and two star ratings on Yelp, I reckon you could say, uh, by most of the French nobility at the time. But that is nothing compared to how it is received by Armée Jeanne, the now widowed wife of Olivia, when she finds out what happens. Jen cannot bloody believe what has happened here. She is devastated, obviously. Obviously, absolutely bloody devos she is, but she's filled with this frothy rage and an overpowering desire for revenge because this wasn't, you, this, you remember, this wasn't the typical political marriage between nobles where you just sort of go, oh, yeah, well, whatever. Yeah, he was, a, I guess he was a good bloke, but whatever. You know, no skin off my nose. Jen bloody loved this bloke. Bloody loved him and wasn't ready to pack up and move on just like that. So instead, she packs up her two kids. Obviously, remember, the others have died by this stage, uh, who are called uh, Guillaume and Olivier, Olivier Jr. Uh, he's the bloke who will later go on to be the, the constable of France, if uh, if you remember. Uh, and she takes him off to Nantes. And there... She shows them the decapitated head of their daddy up on a spike there and swears a bloody and brutal revenge on the French king, Philip VI. And after having done that, this this woman did not muck about at all. She didn't waste a second in getting stuck in with fighting now against the French. This means a complete change of allegiance. You know, assuming you don't believe Philip's assertion that uh, Olivier Senior was a traitor, because pretty much all of the de Clisons have been fighting against the English on the side of the French for years. But that is all over now. That is all over because of what Jeanne does next. She goes ahead. And she sells a bunch of the de Clisson estates. And with the cash that she raises from these sales, she raises this massive army and starts getting stuck into the local French forces like you would not believe. The story goes that she attacked nearby castles and massacred entire divisions of soldiers. Well, actually, not entire divisions, almost entire divisions, because her signature move, her little uh, sort of modus operandi here, the way that she liked to do things, a little post-massacre tradition, I guess you could call it, what she would do after the bloodbath, she would leave one bloke and one bloke only alive so as to go and spread the news of what had happened. So her wrath knows no bounds. she is going up and down Brittany reaving and killing and even attacking soldiers that were under the previous, under the previous command of her husband Olivier right So she has completely turned the tables and every time she does she does this again every single time she is leaving one bloke alive to go and tell the story of this uh, you know of, of her of her butchery and her uh, you know her absolute ultimate brutality here. Now obviously this can't last. She can't stand against the full might of the French military. Should King Philip choose to mobilise against her properly, and realising this, obviously you know she doesn't want to muck around. She's a smart lady, and she gets ahead of the uh, you know ahead of the field and uh, takes to the high seas at the age of forty-three. And her famous career as a pirate finally begins after having you know reaved up and down the French countryside. She's now going to reeve up and down the uh, the French coastline instead. So the way she does this, late in the piece in 1343, Jeanne gets in touch with King Edward of England. She goes over and she says, "G'day there, old mate. Listen, I'll tell you what. You and I, we've got something in common, don't we?" And uh, Eddie looks at her and goes, "says Oh, yep. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, what, what's this then? What you know? What have I? The 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 king of the English got in uh, you know got in in common with you? Uh, you know, a French ex noblewoman." And she says. We bloody, we, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what it is, mate. I'll tell you. We both bloody hate that miserable bastard, Philip, and we want to absolutely ruin everything he does, everything he touches, good and proper. Is that not true, my friend? And uh, Eddie goes, mate, that is actually, that's a very good point. That is a uh, a very, very good point. So what are you thinking? And John goes, well, you match. Listen, check this out. I'm going to kick off a little startup, and it's called Taking to the Seas and Becoming a Bloodthirsty Murdering Pirate. And I'll tell you this. Our mission statement, you'll be very excited to hear, is, I'm thinking, right, bugger those bloody French. What do you think about that for a mission statement? And I, 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 You're in luck. Your Majesty as well you're in luck because a unique opportunity, a unique investment opportunity is in front of you we just so happen to be looking for capital investment for this venture so what do you say and obviously Eddie's over the moon, chucks a bunch of cash at her and so with the remaining money from the sales of the of the De Clos- Clisson estates and this new money that uh, the English had you know given her as well she buys three warships and uh, outfits them and gets them ready for action you know with again all of the provisions provided by the English English guns and all that sort of stuff. Now, because this woman doesn't muck around in the slightest, the first thing she does is paint all the ships black and dye the sails blood red. She also names her flagship My Vengeance, giving everyone a very good idea of what she's all about here. This is, uh, you know, again, she's not taking any half measures here. She's very much wearing her heart on her sleeve. Now, with this terrifying, uh, terrifying fleet assembled, she begins to wage a brutal and bloody campaign of murder against French ships along the English Channel. She sails up and down the waters between France and England, mercilessly attacking any and all French ships she sees. This is not just warships; she's attacking merchant vessels and private vessels. If they're French, they are absolutely between, you know, in the middle of the crosshairs there for her she secured the undying loyalty of the crews aboard her ships obviously you know i'm not i'm sure that part of it is adulation and part of it is just pants-wetting fear uh, of her as well uh, because what they do they board and capture ship after ship after ship and again slaughter everyone on but well no not everyone you know exactly what's coming here Almost everyone on board, because her calling card was to leave one survivor after these massacres in order to carry news of her onslaught back to the French king, and she does exactly the same thing while on the sea. So, as a result of this, Jeanne's exploits uh, soon become a fearful legend in the French court and along the coast, and she becomes known as the Lioness of Brittany. And uh, French sailors were genuinely terrified of this woman and her fleet, as you can well imagine. Think think about sailing along the English Channel, minding your own business, you know, you've got barrels of of frogs and snails and bits of horse and other French delicacies to sell, you know, cheese that you can smell half a mile off. When, oh no, over the horizon, three black ships with crimson sails appear and you just know you are buggered. Best case scenario for you there is being the bloke who gets to watch everyone else get slaughtered before becoming a messenger boy. That's the best case scenario for you in that situation. Anyway, aside from the absolute terror that she inspired in the French sailors in the channel, however, there was also a very practical purpose to her reaving. Whenever she captured a French ship, she would help to supply the English with whatever loot she found. Obviously, the Hundred Years' War is still raging on, don't forget. We haven't passed the 116 years yet. And in fact, Jeanne's assistance is part of the reason for the success of the English at the Battle of Cressy in 1346. She helped to bring in supplies while the battle was raging on, and the English were able to beat a force about twice their size. The Battle of Cressy is actually a super, super fascinating. It's a turning point in the history of warfare, uh, as it's where the English longbow demonstrated its huge superiority. We don't have a huge amount of time to go into, but I'll, I'll give you a quick sort of overview of it here. It's so one of the first instances, uh, not only the longbow, but when the uh, the Rebaldequan was used, which is a, a sort of a firearm that looks a bit like a, a shotgun crossed with a rake. And uh, this this enormously powerful English artillery did an absolute number on the French cavalry and uh, and provoked a huge change in the way that, uh, that battles were fought. Because what happened, essentially, you could line up all these idiots with bows and firearms in a sort of V formation. And then the French, who refused to get off their horses we charging this. The French cavalry was charging uphill into this sort of V shaped disaster zone where they were getting shot off their horses to uh, knights that were at the top of the hill, English knights on foot who would, you know, obviously cut them down uh, by the end of it. And there are all sorts of disasters that went wrong in the Battle of Crecy for the French and all sorts of things that went right for the English as well. It's a very, very fascinating story. We may come back to it in a future episode, but what I want to focus on now is the fact that Jean actually had a material hand in the English uh, victory at Crecy and, again, a turning point in the history of warfare uh, as it was a radical shift away from the, uh, the superiority of heavily armoured mounted knights. Anyway, anyway, all well, this is beside the point. Our mate Jean, she continues her her campaign of terror long after the Battle of Cressy. So potent is her rage with King Philip of France that she just doesn't let up her violence for years and years. She continues fighting blokes, capturing ships, murdering almost entire crews, and generally just striking fears into the hearts of her enemies for years and years to come. And in 1350, when King Philip dies, she kicks it up another notch, presumably furious that she didn't get to, you know, off the bastard herself. Her retribution is swift and terrible. She now starts to specifically target the ships of French noblemen. When her crew managed to snag a ship with a nobleman on it, Jeanne would grab her axe and personally... Cut his head off before tossing the the uh, the body overboard into the sea. Which, by the way, was a huge waste—basically lighting money on fire. Obviously, you know, obviously it's metal as anything here. But she could have made a lot of Skrilladilla if instead she'd ransomed these blokes back, uh, you know, back to their families instead of just murdering them. But she didn't care about that. Didn't care about that at all. Uh, you know, it was much more interested in spilling noble French blood than anything else. Anyway. One of the most interesting things about Jeanne's career of rampant piracy, all this murdering and butchery that she did, was how, that, how it ended. Because there's no sufficient explanation as to why she stopped doing what she did. But for some reason, whatever that reason was, in 1356, she just stopped. She, you know, she's getting well on in years. She's been doing about 13 years. She's into her 50s at this stage. But there's no huge event or, or you know, any, any specific moment that prompted her to hang up her bloody sails. She just stopped. She shacked up once again for the fourth and final time, uh, this time with an English bloke named Sir Walter Bentley. And uh, Jean and Walter had a lot in common. They both uh, had personally fought for years against the French and both had you know a huge number of not- notches on their sword belts. And old Walt had been awarded you know, an, an enormous amount of land and castles and all that sort of stuff uh, that had been captured from the French. And so he and, Je- uh, and Jeanne set up shop in uh, in Castle Hennibon uh, near the, the coast of, of the English-controlled Brittany. So after 13 years of raving and pillaging and, and generally you know causing all sorts of mayhem and headaches for the French as the Hundred Years' War continued, she just kind of settled down with his bloke and lived the quiet life. And uh, she died in Hennebon only three years later at the age of 59. Now, there's this guy I used to know, and he once told me that happiness is boring. And and the fact that the final years of Jean de Clisson seem to have been lived, you know, in more or less complete obscurity suggests, suggests that she lived out the final stages of her life in relative contentedness. But, you know, when you sort of look back at her life as a whole, going from 14th century marital bliss to becoming a murderous and bloodthirsty pirate, it's pretty sweet, Pretty pretty sweet pivot as it is. But then to pivot back to a husband and a, and a white picket fence. Well, no, not a white picket fence. A, you know, a grey stone wall. Jeanne really didn't do too badly for herself. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Jean de Clisson, the Lioness of Brittany. I do realise that uh, I don't think I ever pronounced Jean's name twice in the same way throughout the entire podcast. French, not my strong suit, I have to say, but, you know, you'll, you'll have to forgive me. I hope you enjoyed the story all the same. That's just about that, the boring housekeeping stuff. To uh, to close out the show, half history.net is the podcast website. You can find all the previous episodes and links to uh, Twitter page at half History. no O, wouldn't fit, very annoying and uh, a Patreon as well. If you want to chuck us a couple of bucks, obviously you don't have to, but it is very, very nice. Uh, I do appreciate anyone who is, uh, who is supporting the show financially. Still got stickers to give away. If you send us an email, halfarsedhistory at gmail.com, uh, I'll send you those out for free. Don't even worry about that. And uh, another thing I'm actually interested to know is, is how you found out about the show. So if, if, you want to, if you want to send us an email and let me know how you, uh, how, how you came across half uh, you History, know, I'd really appreciate it. Maybe I, I might uh, include a couple more things in the envelope i send you as well. Uh, if you let me know how you uh, how you came across uh, this podcast, anyway, that is about that. Going to close things out as usual with a uh, a question posed on Reddit. Uh, this time by Reddit historian. This is a very very good P I I like this. Uh, I like this Reddit username a lot. Okay, kompooper. So a, a a marvelous confluence of Radiohead and and toilet humour there. Anyway, okay, kompooper wants to know. We, we you know we've talked about. Jean de Clisson as a a notorious pirate going around, you know, reaving and pillaging like so many other pirates. And obviously one of the best known pirates in history is is Blackbeard. And OK, can people want to know, what kind of stuff did Blackbeard download that made him such a notorious pirate?